Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This time from Florida. Yes, you heard right. For the first time in five months, I actually got on an airplane and headed for Tampa and Bradenton. This week, my conversations with David Van Miller. Van Miller has been the CEO of a number of airlines, from Pan Am to Sun Country, among others, and the author of a new book, Turbulence, 50 Years on the Leading Edge of the Airline Industry. Needless to say, he has just a few things to say on the lessons he learned and what needs to be done now in air travel. Then I'll go from airplanes to airports and talk with the head of a little international airport that can and does, Rick Piccolo, who runs Sarasota Bradenton International Airport. That's right, international. And finally, my chat with Ed Childs, legendary Florida restaurant owner, about how he's adapting with a few surprises to COVID-19. First up, David Banmiller. He's had quite quite a history. Uh, he's been the CEO or COO or just the top executive at airlines ranging from Pan Am to Sun Country, from Air Cal, Air Jamaica, even back in the old days, American Airlines, he's just written a book called Turbulence, 50 Years on the Leading Edge of the Airline Industry. Of course, when you say leading edge these days, that means you might be falling off the edge. His name, David Banmiller. Welcome, welcome aboard, David. Thank you, Peter. Good to be with you. I mean, it's funny because I'm reading you know, your legacy of all the airlines you've been with, um, and with the exception maybe of Sun Country, um, and American Airlines, you've seen a lot of, you've been with a lot of airlines that are no longer with us, so you've seen it all. Well, I'm afraid so. Uh, you missed Aloha, which was maybe one of my crowning achievements, plus perhaps Sun Country. But Peter, you might know, I started in this industry selling tickets and loading bags years ago in Chicago for TWA. And I went through you know, multiple jobs, working my way up uh, the line in virtually every job you could do in this business. Okay, so I've got to ask this question. I got to ask the question, Mr. Sure. Baggage, Mr. Baggage Loader. Of all yeah. the jobs that you had, including you can include CEO if you want. Which was the most rewarding, and which was the one you had the most satisfaction doing? That's interesting. I would say this is going to sound great. Weight and balance, 
because back in those days you had to do the whole thing manually and you basically set up the CG, the center of gravity, the loading systems for the airplanes. Uh, now, of course, the, the computers do it all. And the other one I would say is the gate agent. And people don't understand how hard it is to be a gate agent, particularly these days. It was easier sometimes being a CEO than a gate agent. And the reason, of course, is if you're a CEO, you don't have to deal with people like me. <laughs> oh, well, you're enjoyable. Some are, some aren't, of course, but we enjoy the media. But bottom line is, you know, if you take a look at where we are today uh, and then go back to 1978 when deregulation started and then all the airline bankruptcies that followed over a period of more than 25 years and longer, there was an old saying that if you, you know, you could define a successful airline by which could lose money longer. Well, unfortunately, I've taken three through bankruptcy as the CEO, Pan Am, Sun Country, and Aloha. And it's a very tough and challenging job. It's not all negative, though. Remember, bankruptcy is designed to make companies, and in this case, airlines, healthier. Sometimes you got to go through a lot of trauma. Some people get a lot of pain and hurt from leasing companies to labor and, and banks as well. But it's a tough job. In some respects, actually, Peter, it's a rewarding job when you walk out of bankruptcy having achieved something that you spent a year, year and a half working on. It's it's actually positive in many respects. Because at the end of the day, you want the airline to stay in the air. It's as simple Absolutely. as that. Absolutely. Yeah. And even though you have to make tough decisions on airplanes and lessors and giving old airplanes back particularly and negotiating tough deals – uh, with lessors and banks particularly, as well as unions. But at the end of the day, as long as you've got your eye on the final goal of coming out for the benefit of, of as many people as participate in the process, it's a good feeling. But I've got a lot of war stories in between, some of which are in the book. I gotcha. You speak, you know, you're mentioning old airplanes. In the last, let's say, 10 days, we've seen truly uh, one of the, well, the queen of the skies, uh, you know, we know that there are no longer any 747s flying any passenger flights in the United States within the United States, but you could fly them overseas to London, to Europe, to Asia, but within and, and to South Pacific. But literally within the last 10 days to two weeks, virtually every airline that's been operating a 747 has grounded them, in many cases forever, right? The, 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 the original jumbo jet, that four-engine queen of the skies, British Airways, grounded all 31 of their fleet, never to fly again with British Airways. Qantas did the same with theirs. KLM is doing that right now. Uh, and many other airlines. Uh, it, that's really a sad moment when you see that legendary plane almost in mass leave. We'll give you a little background, Peter. I, I was booked to go to L.A. Uh, next month uh, up in the bubble which is what the best seat on, on a 747, by the way. Of course, they're all now gone. I was on British Airways. When I was younger working for TWA, I handled the first 747 that came into LAX when I was a manager at the airport. And we had three jetways, color-coded boarding cards. It, it was in, We couldn't imagine how we load all these people. Of course, now it's a lot easier. And we used to go back and forth across the pond up in the bubble when it was a cocktail lounge with, with the kids and family. Those days are gone forever, Peter. It's hard for me to actually come to grips with it. And most of the 380s as well, which we took to Joburg a couple of years ago, most of those are probably grounded for good. Yeah, the only uh, most of the airlines have grounded their A380s. 
uh, forever. They've parked them, and there's no secondary market. There's nobody to buy them. Um, in fact, Lufthansa is trying to turn some of them into cargo planes. Uh, the only airline, in fact, the, the airline that flies the most A380s, in fact, has always flown the most, that's Emirates, they're going to continue to fly them. But just about every airline I can imagine that has them is uh, dumping them. Well, you know, I, you know this very well, Peter. It was uneconomical uh, from the get-go, unfortunately. And a lot of them were on the block and orders were being canceled and they were reducing the, the manufacture of the new, newer A380s. Emirates, you're right, will will keep them. But they became uneconomic in the long term. They were a wonderful airplane. Uh, we It was fabulous to fly them. But uh, a combination of, obviously, the, the COVID pandemic and the uneconomic nature of such a big airplane, probably folks like Emirates are the only ones who could afford to do it, maintaining their hub, you know, in the Middle East. And the irony of all ironies, and, and you being an airline executive, let's see if you get this question right. When Airbus first designed and built the A380, who were the first two launch customers? And I'll give you a hint. Uh, Airbus was delayed, of course, in delivering those planes. And when the delays grew, these two launch customers said, you know what? We're going to give up our options. We're never going to take delivery of the plane. And if we feel like it, we'll pick them up used in about six years. Take a guess. Singapore might have been one of them. Okay. Uh, you, know, you, and, you know, incorrect. And Qantas. Incorrect. You ready? And it makes a lot of sense now. FedEx and UPS. Of course. Right? And now, now they're thinking about making cargo planes out of them. Crazy. You know, when... Uh, when the first MD-11s came out, there were some carriers, especially I think FedEx at that time, that said, I'm going to wait a couple of years uh, where they get the kinks out. Steve Hazy, who's one of the premium leasing guys on the planet, I've known Steve through multiple airlines back 30 years. Steve would tell me that when he ordered like up to 100 airplanes, he didn't want the first delivery. He wanted to get the cobwebs out of the airplane and get get it moving, uh, you know, before he took his positions. Right. And interestingly enough, you know, when the MD-11 came out, the people who were smart didn't take them as cargo planes. And the biggest deal that was made was made between American Airlines and FedEx. That's where all the American Airlines DC-10s went when American was finished. Right. And they're still flying for, for FedEx. The problem with the 380, as you, as you probably know, is it doesn't have that forward loading capacity. Uh, as opposed to the 747. And, you know, one of the 380s now is actually in Ireland being broken apart and parted out. Oh, yeah. Emirates has, has decided to park a few of theirs only for spare parts uh, that they'll never fly again. And you know this as a, as a former airline executive. You don't break apart a plane that's only eight years old. Planes, are, you know, can go for 20, 25 years or at least 15, but not eight. So this was not part of the plan when the A380 was made. Uh, no, it isn't. Uh, I was in a business once where we bought new engines, broke them down, and sold the spare parts of the engine for 95% of retail price. Uh, and there's money to be made in uh, in that process, but it's sort of depressing to see it happen to the 380, unfortunately. You know, airplanes are designed to fly 25, 30, 40 years, and they go into these heavy D-checks where they basically strip the airplane inside and out, re redo the interiors, the galleys, and so on, which is why they can fly for so long. I flew down here uh, for the first time in five months, which to me was like unheard of. 
um, to come down to uh, to Tampa and then and then drive over to Bradenton. Uh, I went to a, a smaller airport, Islip in New York. Uh, got on a Frontier Airlines plane. Um, of course, I had my mask. They took my temperature. The plane was only booked basically under 30%, so I had my own row. Um, there was no in-flight service to begin with. Uh, and normally on Frontier, they're not, you know, they're, they're not an airline that's predicated on in-flight service. They're a low-fare carrier. But I have to say, the plane was completely clean. It was a relatively new plane. Uh, we landed, we took off on time, we landed on time. The Tampa airport was basically deserted. I didn't have any check-in bags. It was a, it was the fastest uh, from start to finish I've ever been through. Uh, you and I both know that when we get that vaccine and appropriate therapeutics, that experience that I just had is not going to be repeated. Well, it can't be repeated economically. As you know, the break-even load factors, depending upon the airline and the time of year, is roughly 70, 75%. And those people that say, block the middle seat forever, don't understand economics, including some of our favorite politicians that say, just, just block the middle seat, which, as you know, doesn't work. In addition, I find that airplanes with the that fabulous filtering system, 99.9% of the air moves around through very sophisticated filters, you're safer there than you probably are in a grocery store and even in an operating theater. I think the masks are going to be around for a long time. And I said for months ago, Peter, when I started interviewing about the book, the FAA has to mandate masks because otherwise you're going to get fistfights on airplanes. People are going to argue. An attorney's going to stand up and say, it's my right not to have to wear a mask. And we did it with non-smoking. It, it took a long time. We did it with seat belts. We did it with uh, a number of other um, FAA ac actions. And I think it's time to face that one because it makes sense. My, my brother, who you know, Brian said once, he said, you know, when you're on your deathbed, do you believe in God or not? Well, you're not going to take any risks. So why do you t want to take a risk on a mask? And I'm proud of the guys at Delta and America in particular that have taken a strong stance to say, look, guys, you have to wear a mask. And if you don't want to, you can't fly on, on this airline. I, I, I strongly endorse that because it's not a perfect solution, of course. Sure. We're going to be around with it for a long My granddaughter uh, lives in Tokyo. Uh, and I said, we had a call this week. And I said, Karen, What's it like in Tokyo? She said, everybody wears masks. They've worn masks for years. It's their culture. It's their structure. It's the way that they're built. And I think we're going to have to face up to the same issue, Peter. Perhaps the problem is that in the current anti-regulatory mood of the uh, current administration, the FAA and the DOT has not made wearing face masks a federal air regulation like they've done with seatbelts or, uh, or the no smoking. Right, David? Uh, you're correct, Peter, and I think that's unfortunate. They should be taking a command position on this issue. The responsibility of the FAA and the DOT is primarily focused on safety amongst all the other obligations that they have. Well, this is a safety issue, and while it may not be comfortable to talk about in certain circles, I think it's the right thing to do, and to put airlines themselves in the hot seat, which is what's going to happen, or a flight attendant. You know, I'm very sympathetic towards flight attendants and and cabin crew members my entire career. And they're at the point of the spear now, and they have to deal with this on a daily basis. And they're being put in a very difficult position. I agree with you. And I hope that it'll, it'll, it'll be a rule because then you cannot mess with it. If, if, if a flight attendant tells me, please fasten your seatbelt, and I don't, I'm taken off the plane and arrested by federal marshals. So exactly. that's the deal here. Let me just shift gears for a second, David, because what's interesting now 
and of course necessity being the mother of invention in a, in a more bizarre way, is all the airlines have essentially, for the moment, waived a lot of those ancillary fees, your change fees, your rebooking fees, your frequent flyer deposit fees, uh, and in many cases even your seat fees in terms of getting a lower lower fare seat. Uh, is there any possibility that when all of this is said and done and we're back to whatever we want to call normal again, that a lot of those fees will stay away from us or they're going to reinstitute them? They'll probably be reinstituted. I don't think Southwest will because they've sort of made a statement about what their travel requirements and customer service and pricing strategies are. I am a believer in certain fees because you take a basic cost of flying a seat and then if you want to choose a seat, add baggage fees, et cetera, then you should pay more. In terms of changes, that's a very debatable yeah. issue. I could argue both sides of that one. My thanks to David Van. The airlines aren't the only ones hurting during the pandemic. Airports around the world have taken a big hit, not just in passenger numbers, but in retail, parking, and other revenue. So how do these airports survive? What's the plan? Rick Piccolo, who runs the Sarasota Bradenton Airport, is in the midst of that struggle. My next guest runs what was, up until recently, the fastest growing airport in the United States. And that would be the uh, the Sarasota Bradenton International Airport. Rick Piccolo, welcome. Thank you, Peter. Welcome. Okay, now it's mentioning international, so yes. hurt me. <laughs> who, who, who was flying in? Uh, well, we have had nine airlines flying in, including Air Canada from Canada. Uh, we had Delta. We still do have all these airlines. Delta, American, United, JetBlue, uh, Air Canada, Elite, Allegiant. Sun Country, and Frontier. And you win absolutely nothing for getting all those correct. <laughs> but bottom line is, COVID-19 notwithstanding, you were a growing airport. Uh, we were growing uh, in the first three months of this year at 53% after growing 44% in the previous year. That's unprecedented. We were up nearly 100%, yes. It, it was uh, why crazy was, growth. Why was that? Uh, I think the area was finally discovered by airlines, and they finally realized many of the things we were saying, which is that people would prefer to fly into here than other competing airports. I mean, we sit in the middle of five other airports around us. You know, I've always said, if you take a look at the United States, there, there are great hidden gem airports, mm-hmm. right? There's Islip in Long Island, which is how we flew to Tampa. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, Providence instead of Boston. There's Oakland instead of San yeah. Francisco. And there's Sarasota instead mm-hmm. of? Instead of Tampa, Fort Myers, Punta Gorda, St. Pete, and Orlando. So uh, that's why I say we're in the middle of, uh, surrounded by five other airports. Uh, I think it's the nicest airport in the country. And, uh, uh if you get the chance, you might want to change your ticket and fly out of Sarasota, and you'll find that out for yourself. I'll get back to you on that. All right. But, and I've flown in before, so yes. it's it's not new to me. But for most people listening to the show, it might be. Yeah, it's a beautiful airport. It's, it's in fantastic shape. Uh, we remodeled the terminal about four years ago, uh, both from the standpoint of the physical infrastructure is in great shape, and our financial infrastructure is in great shape. We're one of the few airports in the country with no debt uh, and have about, uh, right now, about $43 million in the bank. So COVID will not be uh, overwhelming to us. It is hurting the bottom line. Certainly, we'll probably be about four to four and a half million dollars below budget and revenues for this fiscal year, which ends in September. Well, let's, but let's talk about the good shape. about what most people don't understand about how airports work, yes. right? Airports make money from parking fees. Oh, yeah. You make money from retail and concessionaires. 
You don't necessarily make all your money from landing fees. Right. Uh, we only make about uh, 40% of our revenue from airlines. We have a lot of other business interests. We have three industrial parks uh, that we own. We have uh, all those other things like parking and car rental and, and food and beverage and all that that we get a piece of the action on. And most airports, commercial service airports in this, in this country, are profit-making entities. They don't have any taxing power. And so uh, we make money every year. Uh, we have a margin between 10 and 20% profit margin, as well as all that money in the bank. If we were a private company, some big company would probably want but plus us. Plus, you can also tap in, if they're nice to you, the FAA Improvement. Right. There's the AIP fund, which is funded through user fees on tickets, right. uh, taxes, and, uh, and aviation fuel. So it's still the user's helping to fund it, and we have to match some of those funds, so we have to generate profits to do that as well. But let's also talk about one of the big challenges that you and every airport has. Mm -hmm. When this airport was built in what year? Yeah, this one was opened in 89. So you're a relatively new airport when you think about the fact that America hasn't really had a new airport since Denver. Yeah. Right? I mean, that was what, 97? in the 90s, yes. Yeah, so, but you're one of the new ones, right? But even being one of the new ones... You were built before 9-11. Yes. And the physical structure of every airport was never really built for the kind of security needs that you need, physically in terms of the space, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, now you've got to add in the, in the era of COVID-19, you know, social distancing. I mean, you, get, you take some airports, if they were at back to capacity with social distancing requirements, the security lines would be a mile and a half long. Oh, yeah, they'd be out the door. So, Literally, uh, they'll be yeah, out the county. They, they, just about. It, yeah. it would be. Uh, hopefully, uh, we can get to a point where uh, uh, they get a vaccine and we can get back to the normal stuff uh, sometime next year. Hopefully. But until that happens, how are you adjusting to just the physical limitations of your floor plan? Uh, we haven't had that issue because the, the level of traffic hasn't right. dictated that. We're at about 35 to 40% of our normal traffic, yeah. which is actually tracking quite good compared to a number of other airports, uh, but it's still a long ways from where we were. So we're have not lost, having a problem. Have you lost any airlines? We haven't lost any airlines. We That's have significant. had JetBlue suspended service till September. Uh, but they were only flying New York at the time. They're actually going to come back with New York, with JFK and Newark when they start service again. So they've added back, they've added Newark, which they never served before. Uh, but we haven't lost any airlines. We've certainly lost uh, a lot of service. Uh, but we're serving about 21 cities right now. Uh, Allegiant should add another six next month, bringing them back. So we're getting back to where we were when we were hitting 38 cities. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a challenge, but we've seen every month our traffic go up. Uh, we did 10,000 passengers in April when we should have done uh, 250,000. Then Whoops. we did uh, about 40,000 in May. We did 53,000 in June. And uh, the way things are tracking, because we, we see the throughput each day in the security checkpoint, uh, we should hit somewhere in the 65 to 70,000 this month. As but I you're said, not going to turn it around this year. You can't. No, no. Uh, and... Uh, uh, I think it's going to take a, a good year and a half to two years to, uh, to get back Hoping to where we were vaccine, after you get a vaccine. vaccine and, exactly. And therapeutics. Also, there's the retail aspect. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, I, we flew here from Islip because it was a nonstop we could mm -hmm. find, right? There's no retail at that airport right now. No, our, our, our retail is very limited. Uh, and, and it was limited in the sense that it, even before this hit, because we're an O&D airport, uh, and so there's not a lot Nobody, of... Nobody's connecting. All right. Right. No one's connecting. Uh, and because we're such a convenient and easy airport to get through, much easier than all those other five airports that I mentioned. Uh, was that a plug? That was a plug. Thank you. Uh, that uh, people don't have... A, they'd get there an hour before the flight leaves, 
go through ticketing, security, and have about 30 minutes uh, left, and the plane boards 20 minutes before uh, before it's going to depart. So they had about right. 10 minutes of dwell time. So most of our food and beverage was fast, quick, quick grab food, and then the nobody's same going out to, to your airport for fine dining. No, not for fine dining, and and not to go to uh, uh, Nordstrom's or Saks or something. But like that But realistically either. speaking, Rick, the bottom line for me at, at most airports mm-hmm. is I my goal is not to go to an airport. My goal is to go through an through airport. An airport. Exactly. Right? And that's what we try to do is make it as easy as possible. And I think we're, we're pretty successful at that. So what's your biggest challenge now? Our biggest challenge now is, is dealing with this downturn, uh, par- partially to keep people's spirits up, both in our workforce and the tenants, uh, and, and manage the dollars as judiciously as possible, even though we're, as I said, in very good financial shape and uh, our annual budget is about $20 million a year. So with the reserves we have right now, we go two and a half years without getting a nickel from anyone. Uh, I think our revenues will track somewhere in about 75% of what we normally would get. So Which, we could relatively go, speaking, is pretty good. Oh, yeah. We could go five, six years like this if we had to before we would run out of reserves, let alone have to borrow any money. Well, the thing that's surprising me in a good way about what you just told me is that you haven't lost an airline. No. And, and I think the demand for this region is just exploding. Now, when we talk about international service, we're talking mostly Canada? We're, we're talking mostly Canada. We have been on a number of marketing trips overseas to try and uh, attract some Europe, European Probably not travel. the right time to do that. No, no not now, but I mean before this yeah. as we were growing. And, and I think that eventually will come. Uh, but the community is growing so quickly. I, I think we were... One of the fastest growing communities in the country. Uh, the last five years, it's averaged a 20,000 person increase per year. Uh, that's a small city every year being added to this community. That's remarkable. My thanks to Rick Piccolo. And last but not least, there's Ed Childs, who owns the Childs Group of Restaurants here in Florida. Few sectors of the travel and tourism industry have been hit harder than restaurants. And a growing number of those that have closed around the U.S., will never reopen. But Ed is up and running, and he has a plan. If you follow the industry like I do, you know that few industries in the travel and tourism division have been affected by COVID-19 as the restaurant industry. The unemployment figures are devastating. There's some estimates that one-third of all the restaurants that have closed may never reopen, may never come back. It really is the survival of the fittest at a time in which the rules are changing almost daily. Uh, especially even here in Florida. And I thought it'd be a good idea to talk to somebody who knows a little bit about that. He's the uh, the owner of the Charles Group of Restaurants, Ed Charles. How are you, sir? I'm doing good, Peter. It's a pleasure to join you today. I mean, you heard my introduction. It's been a tough go because, you know, even with the, uh, you know, the SBA PPP money or even with unemployment filings, uh, the restaurant business has been hit very, very hard. There's no question about that. Uh, we have never uh, in our industry, and I think across all industries, uh, faced anything of this magnitude and that has the degree of uncertainty that we have here. Um, so, yes, PPP has been uh, very helpful. Uh, I don't know what we would do without it, and I know a lot of the uh, my friends in the business feel the same way, uh, but you know, that's going to run out. It is running out now in, uh, in August. Uh, we will be through that. Uh, and so, you know, we really need to make sure that we are doing the right things and um, better, doing better than we are right now in terms of uh, a coordinated strategy 
uh, and everyone participating in arresting uh, this pandemic. You know, when I looked at your background and your history and read that you were actually in charge of the baboon section of the Great Adventure <laughs> Safari Park in New Jersey, in charge of 140 baboons, I figured you could handle anything. Peter, you know Great Adventure, right? I mean, you, I you do. remember when, when Great Adventure opened. Uh, I do. And I opened that that park, uh, and I know, you know, with your background in, in travel and tourism, uh, that was really a monumental opening, the largest safari park, uh, drive through safari park in the United States or North America at that time. And everything I learned about life, I learned in the monkey jungle. And then, Ed, you did the unthinkable. You actually relocated to Miami and worked at the iconic Joe Stonecrab. So you learned some stuff there, too. How about that? Uh, you know, uh, one of the great uh, seafood institutions uh, in the country uh, back in 19... 19- 79 when I started working, 1978 when I started working there uh, with a political science degree, uh, you know, had to find a way to make a living. So I went and did an apprenticeship in the restaurant business. They were doing 1,600 meals a day then, and it was a, a, such a unique place and still is today. What a great institution. And then, of course, you mentioned your political science degree. I, I think we have to mention that you didn't go in the, in the line of work of your dad, who was the governor of Florida. Well, uh, I ran for office one time. and <laughs> One time. Uh, <laughs> I did, yeah, and uh, got rid of the guilt of not being willing to offer myself and uh, kind of uh, lost in a close race and felt let out of school ever since. So, uh, But uh, I have been fortunate to participate in my community and, and be involved. Uh, politics was kind of the family business, so I, I still kind of stay involved in that. But thank God it's tangentially and, and, uh, and, and not as a, a running for office again. So. And what brought you to Anna Marie Island? And most importantly, what keeps you there? Well, you know, what keeps me there is the a wonderful, unique slice of paradise that Anna Maria is. What brought me there was the uh, blessings of uh, my lineage and my birth. I don't ever remember not being in Anna Maria. So my grandparents came, uh, my mom and dad came, and uh, I, you know, I think I came in utero the first times that I was there, and uh, I've always had that uh, that sand in my bloodstream. And uh, as you know from from experience in Anna Maria, it's a very unique place. And how many restaurants are you now running? Well, I run three. I own and operate three, and then I uh, I'm also a part owner in Papo's uh, Mission Style Taqueria. Uh, and we have nine of those. I'm part of a wine company, and we do a lot of stuff with sustainable seafood and uh, the targa, the cured mullet roe, which all comes from our area. And then also we have our local organic farm as well. So well, we've got know, our finger in a number of pies. You do. And you mentioned the word sustainable, which, of course, is a perfect segue for this question. Are you going to be able to sustain everything in the wake of COVID-19? And in the absence of a vaccine or therapeutics, how long can we can continue to, 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 to just try to, you know, muddle through? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that we are blessed to be uniquely, somewhat uniquely situated. My thanks to Ed Childs, to Rick Piccolo, and to David Van Miller. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more interviews of the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, or review this Ion Travel podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for a catchy name for the latest in travel news updates. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free 
right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.